0: Psalms 19 verse 8 says that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And so if you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we dive back into our study of what everyday evangelism ought to look like in our lives as those who have been transformed into followers and believers in Jesus Christ. You see, God through this letter has been teaching us over these last several months the basics of essential christianity and we've seen that biblical christianity is fundamentally different from every other religion that is on the face of this earth because even from its inception christianity is not a tale of men and women who work their way up to god rather Christianity is the good news of a God who in compassion came down to sinners like you and I in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, in order to make us acceptable who were not acceptable. What we proclaim is the good news of God's good work on our behalf, not our good work before God. Jesus lived the blameless. And spotless life that no one in this room or on this earth has ever lived. He then offered up that perfect life as a payment for the forgiveness of our sins through the shedding of his blood on the cross. And then, glory of glories, Jesus rose again from the dead so that even today he might make men and women and children who trust in him born again. So that even today he could give you a brand new spiritual life that's no longer in love with sin, which drags you to condemnation and death, but rather in love with God who leads us in the way of eternal life. So that's the good news that you and I are to be all about. I hope that's the message that you are sharing with others each and every week, beginning in your own families. That according to verse 3, there is a God of great mercy who causes sinners to be born again through faith in Christ Jesus. And once we belong to Him, once we are born again into God's loving family, the first two chapters of 1 Peter lay it out over and over again, That we have a heavenly inheritance, we have a heavenly hope, we have a heavenly salvation, we have a heavenly reward, we have a heavenly promise, we have a heavenly father, we have a heavenly ministry, and we have a heavenly family. No matter which way you look at it, to be a Christian, to be born again by God's great mercy and power is to have new life from above, which begs the question, then why are you and I still here? If we have a heavenly inheritance, a heavenly hope, heavenly salvation, heavenly reward, heavenly promise, heavenly father, heavenly ministry, and heavenly family, why aren't you and I in heaven? Why are we still here on earth? And the answer that Peter's been driving like a freight train towards is found in chapter 2, verse 9, where we read these words, but you are a chosen race A royal priesthood, a people, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Why? So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, our heavenly calling comes with an earthly commission. To proclaim God's saving excellencies to a lost and dying world. This is why we're still here on earth. It is to bear witness to the truth by holding fast and holding forth the word of life so that sinners who are under the wrath of God headed to eternal death might hear of this God of great mercy who sent His Son to die on the cross in their place and that they might be saved and have eternal life. That is why you are here. It's not to establish a great retirement portfolio. And I think God's going to prove that to us in the next couple of years here in our country. That's why we're here. It is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. It is not to establish a really nice, comfortable home where no one bothers us. I think God's going to show that to us also in the next couple of years here in this country. It is to be about the mission of proclaiming Jesus Christ world headed to hell that's why we're here we're to be about this earthly commission because of our heavenly calling and we do that as believers not only through our words obviously the gospel is a message that we must proclaim and peter's going to touch on that in chapter 3 verse 15 just like he touched on it back in chapter 2 verse 9 but we we're we can be about the great commission even through our actions our entire earthly pilgrimage here on earth is to be laser-focused on glorifying our holy and redeeming God before the eyes of an unredeemed world. Everything is to be crafted in our life around the Great Commission. And you know what? That means that some things in our lives might need to change. And that's what 1 Peter's showing us in chapters 2 and 3. Some things are going to have to be put off. And some things are going to have to be put on so that we live lives that underline the gospel that we're proclaiming not undermine it. And we need to be honest enough when it comes to evangelism to recognize that there are so-called respectable sins, sins that churches tend to excuse and overlook that actively undercut our evangelistic efforts. Let me give you just four examples because these are the four that Peter indirectly addresses through this letter. The first is a spirit of disregard and rebellion against authority. That undermines our evangelistic efforts. Think about how contrary it is to tell others, you need to earnestly submit to the saving sovereignty and authority of Jesus Christ over you for salvation, while also eagerly saying to those whom Christ has put over you, give me one excuse, man, just one excuse, and I will kick wide open that door of rebellion. When we as believers exhibit more a spirit of rebellion than a spirit of submission to authority, we underline our gospel witness, which is at its very heart a call to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter says in chapter 2 verse 13 that as long as it is proper in Christ, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So that we can underline the gospel that we are preaching, not undermine it. The second sin that creates obstacles to us sharing the gospel with others is the sin of disrespect. Again, consider this morning. How effective would your gospel witness be to your parents, your boss, your spouse, or to anybody you know if you are at the same time being demeaning with your words, impatient in spirit, or suspicious of motives? How much are they going to want to hear what you have to say to them if the same mouth that is sharing the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ to their face is also the same mouth that is cursing them and tearing them down behind their backs. Being harsh, unkind, or disrespectful towards others creates an obstacle to you sharing the gospel. And that is why Peter says in chapter 2, verse 17, honor everyone and later even honor the emperor. It's so that you can underline the gospel that you're trying to proclaim, not undermine it. A third overlooked sin that often creates personal obstacles to sharing the gospel is Christian division and animosity. Again, I want you to think about it this morning. How effective is your gospel witness going to be if you say to someone who is lost, God has poured out His love towards us in Christ Jesus. Here's the example. It's me. And by the way, come this Wednesday to our church business meeting where I'm going to present two decades of grievances before the church and that place is going to be lit. How many people are going to want to listen to you if that is the type of person you are? No one is. Christian animosity betrays the message of Christ's love. That's why Peter says in chapter 2, verse 17, he's going to say, and expound on it later in this letter, love the brotherhood. And then finally, a fourth sin that can undercut our evangelistic efforts as believers is spiritual irreverence towards God. Irreverence towards God. Again, consider how effective is your gospel witness going to be if you go around telling others, listen to me. Repent of your sins and believe in the gospel while at the same time not listening to God yourself, loving your own sins and retreating from the gospel. Spiritual irreverence creates an obstacle to personal evangelism. And that's why Peter says in chapter 2, verse 17, and he's going to expound on later in this letter, fear God. Fear God. See, few things create a greater hindrance to the spread of the gospel than the sins of rebellion, disrespect, hatred, and irreverence when they are tolerated among the people of God. And so Peter tells us that if we want to be effective in communicating the gospel, beginning in the context of our everyday relationships, then we've got to learn to be subject, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, and fear God. That's the outline that Peter is taking us through in his letter we've seen how to be subject for the sake of the gospel in in chapter 2 verses 13 through 16 and currently we're learning how to honor everyone for the sake of the gospel that began back in chapter 2 verses 17 through 18 if you recall where we were told that we ought to honor our sovereigns and honor our supervisors well that continues today in chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 where we're going to see that we ought to honor our spouses just as Peter taught us in verses 19 through 25 of chapter 2, this is one of the ways that we show enduring goodness. This is one of the ways that we radiate grace, reflect Jesus, and reach sinners with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is honoring everyone, beginning in your own household. And this is where Peter's argument becomes so clear. You cannot separate the task of evangelism from your everyday life and living. If you want to make an impact in this world for Jesus Christ, it starts very close to home, quite literally. Peter's going to remind us all today that our effort to reach the lost for Jesus Christ often begins in our own households. And even for many of us, perhaps it begins in our own marriages, which is by how we treat our spouse every day. We are either underlining the gospel, or we're un- we're either underlining the gospel, or we're undermining it. So, which is it? If we want to be about the task of everyday evangelism, every day, then the foundation starts at home in showing Christ-like honor and respect to your own spouse. So, with that in mind, let's read First Peter, chapter three, verses one through seven. I'm going to do something new. If you wouldn't mind, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're able. 1 Peter 3, 1-7. through seven. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us today. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the Word, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the Word of God which we rejoice at as one who finds great spoil. Let's pray. Father, we come. We've heard Your Word read. Now we pray, Father, that You would teach us Your Word by Your Spirit. Help us, Father, to know what it looks like to honor our spouses so that we would adorn the saving Gospel of Jesus Christ each and every day by how we respond to those who are closest to us. Give us grace, Father, to listen and to obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So after teaching us about the saving impact that enduring goodness has among the lost, Peter takes us back to one of the ways that we show enduring goodness each and every day, and that is by making sure that we're honoring everyone, starting as verses 1 through 7 will show us, with our own spouses in marriage. And this passage can be broken up into two basic points that we'll look at over several weeks. In verses 1 through 6, we'll look at the Christ-like wife's respectful submission to her husband, And then in verse 7, we'll look at the Christ-like husband's respectful sensitivity to his wife. So this is how we as Christians are to demonstrate enduring goodness through showing honor to our spouses. It is through respectful submission accompanied by respectful sensitivity. And we're just going to be able to look at the beginning of that first point this morning. And I need to say right here at the beginning, that understanding this passage rightly and correctly... And making sure we're not saying anything more or anything less than this passage actually says can sometimes prove to be very difficult. And that's because Satan wants it to be. You see, no institution has been so violently attacked, undermined, assaulted, and manipulated by Satan throughout history than the institution of marriage It was where Satan first injected himself and all of his evil lies. It began in the garden, stepping in between Adam and Eve. And ever since then, Satan has continually been disseminating confusion and false teaching regarding marriage and family roles, either from the radical feminist side, if you want to call it that, or the radical chauvinistic side. And so our job this morning is to carefully consider not what does not what do other people say about passages like this, not what do other people say about what the Bible says, but we ought to consider what the Bible actually says. And so we're going to take our time because it is this alone, the truth, that can expose all lies and correct all error. And so let's begin unpacking this passage for us today. How do we live as elect exiles in this world for the glory of God it be it it is by honoring everyone beginning with our spouses so let's start by looking at a Christ-like wife's respectful submission to her husband a Christ-like wife's respectful submission to her husband that's in verses 1 through 6 and it all begins in verse 1 with these four words likewise wives be subject Now, this sentence begins with the word likewise, meaning that the believing wives here are commanded to act in a similar way or manner as someone or something that has been mentioned beforehand. So what is it? Well, you could look back at verse 13 and verse 18 of chapter 2 and think, oh, well, believing wives are supposed to show a similar type of subjection. So just as citizens are to be subject to their emperor and slaves are to be subject to their masters, so wives are to be subject to their husbands. And even as it's coming out of your mouth, you realize, no, that cannot be what Peter is teaching here. Nowhere in scripture does God ever picture the wife's role in marriage as that of a servile slave operating beneath a domestic dictator. And Peter is no exception. So we know that this word likewise can't be referring to a similar subjection, especially, by the way, since this exact same word likewise is used later in verse 7 regarding a husband's role towards his wife. And it doesn't mention subjection there at all, but rather being respectful, understanding, and sensitive. So if likewise isn't pointing back to the example of submissive citizens and servants, then what is that word likewise pointing back to? The answer is, it is pointing back to the example of the enduring goodness of Jesus Christ in verses 21 and following. Everything from chapter 2 verse 13 into chapter 3 verse 7 is centered on verse 21. It is all centered on Jesus Christ, rightly so where Peter writes, starting at the end of verse 20, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, that is, to enduring goodness, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then Peter shows us what Christ's example of enduring goodness looked like when he writes in verses 22-23, through He says that Jesus committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, Jesus kept on doing what was good and right. He kept on doing what God desired, no matter the consequences. That's the example of Jesus. He demonstrated enduring goodness in the face of hardship and difficulties. And Peter's point that he's saying here is, likewise, wives, do the same. Follow Christ's example. Show enduring goodness in your marriage relationship. Show enduring goodness towards your husbands, even in the face of hardship and difficulties. And what that enduring goodness will most often look like when you're a believing wife is choosing to be subject. Because let's be honest, nothing can be harder or more difficult for a believing wife to do at times than to be subject to your own husband. Wives, I don't think I need to convince you of that this morning. Husbands, however, (laughs) if you are wanting to know why it can be so difficult for your wife, have you taken a good look in the mirror lately? Husbands often mistake leadership as arrogance and overconfidence. As long as I am overly confident in what I'm doing, I am leading. Well, you could be doing a really poor job, right? Husbands often make decisions without seeking their wife's input on it, even though God literally gave her to be a helper for you. Husbands often respond harshly and without patience in conversations towards their wives. Why are you talking to me about this now? Why are you asking me so many questions? Husbands often don't nourish and cherish their wives as their own bodies, but instead often husbands expect far too much out of their wives. In short, we as husbands often do a terrible job of dwelling with our wives in an understanding way, as verse 7 is going to command us to do later. All of those things often make it very hard and difficult for a wife to be subject to that. And so we're going to talk about that a lot when we come to verse 7, just so you men know. (laughs) Nevertheless, what Scripture says here is one of the ways that a believing wife shines out the enduring goodness of Christ on a daily basis in the face of hardship and difficulty is by being subject to her own husband. And notice even if it's an unbelieving husband, as Peter's going to mention later. In fact, that's primarily, primarily the application that Peter has in mind here, I think, in this passage. We need to remember, this entire section of Scripture here in 1 Peter is primarily about how we as believers relate to the unsaved world in which we live, right? So chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 was all about how do we relate to and reach our unsaved leaders that are in government. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 was all about how do we relate to and reach out to our unsaved bosses and co-workers at work. And here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, I am going to contend as we go through this, it is mostly about, primarily about, how do we relate to and reach out to our unsaved spouses, even if they're unsaved at home, even if some do not obey the word. This is all about reaching the lost for Jesus Christ wherever they might be, and however near and dear to our hearts they might be. This is all about reaching the lost for Christ. And Peter is under no delusion, by the way, that most spouses, bosses, and government leaders in a believer's life are going to be saved. Far from it. In fact, Peter knows that most of them will not be. That's how the gospel works. It cuts a clear line through society. And often the gospel will cut a clear line right through a marriage bed. As Jesus himself said in Luke twelve fifty one through 52 Do you think that I have come to bring peace to this earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. In other words, some will become true followers of Christ. Others will not. The gospel divides, and it always has, and it always will. And therefore... Peter knows that it will be the common experience of most believers to live in a world where most of their government are rulers, most of their bosses, and sometimes even their own spouses are not saved. And the challenge before them and us as elect exiles is, then how do we reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ? How do we win them for Christ? And how do we underline the gospel by our lives and not undermine it? Peter gives us the answer in respect to your husband. Even if he's unsaved, it all begins by showing respectful submission to them. Likewise, wives, be subject. And I think it's significant that this is what God tells believing wives, even those who are married to unbelieving husbands, to do. God does not say, notice here, divorce your husband because he's unsaved. Nor does he say, harass your husband or... Complain about him because he's unsaved. No, God says, Submit to your husband, even if he's unsaved. Why? Because just like we saw at the end of chapter 2, enduring goodness can have an evangelistic impact, and Peter's going to lay that out for us. Therefore, he says, Wives, be subject. Now, that word submit or be subject to means, just as we've studied, in the past, in verse 13 and verse 18, that word submitters be subject to means to voluntarily align yourself under the authority of another's God-given position. And so just like leaders have a God-given position in government and just like bosses have a God-given position in in the workplace, so also husbands in marriage have a God-given position as well. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says, I want you to understand That the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. You see, husbands, even unbelieving husbands, have been given in marriage a position of God-given authority and responsibility. And believing wives who seek to imitate Christ are to voluntarily align themselves under that authority. Because in almost every instance, when they submit to the authority that Christ has put over them, They are showing their subjection to Christ Himself. That's exactly what Ephesians 5.22 says, by the way, when we read these words, which were read this morning. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, or because you're submitting to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is Himself its Savior. Now, there, there are some obvious exceptions to this command to be subject, just like there were when we talked about citizens to their government and employees to their employers. And we'll talk about those exceptions more when we come to the end of verse 6. One of those exceptions would be if your husband asks you to do what Scripture forbids or forbids what Scripture commands, you are to listen to God rather than man. You are, as verse 6 describes, to commit yourself to doing good and not fear anything that is frightening. Which, and I want to say this right off the bat, even though I'm going to talk about this more later, it means this. Please listen to me here. It means that if you have a husband who is trying to control you by fear, and let me even say it this way. If you have a husband you are afraid of, come and talk to me or one of the elders in this church, we are committed to help you, protect you, and shepherd you in doing what is good and not fearing anything that is frightening. And part of what is doing what is good, by the way, if you've lost sight of this, is protecting your own body, which is God's, which He has purchased with His own blood. And so I want to say, because I don't know all the circumstances, if you feel like there is no safe place to go for help, this is me telling you our church family is committed to be that place. That's why there's a shine-up sheet in the back towards creating a community needs response team. Because James one twenty seven says we are to care for people in affliction. And then let me also say this, even though I'll we'll, again talk about this more in verse 6. Husbands, if your wife or children are afraid of you because you try to control them by fear, then you need to talk to one of the leaders of this church as well, because we are just as committed to shepherding you past your fear into doing what is good and right also. So we'll talk about that more when we come to verses 6 through 7, but I want you to know even before we begin, this is in the back of my mind but for most other instances in marriage. If the husband isn't commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God commands, wives are to demonstrate they have the opportunity to show the enduring goodness of Christ in their marriage by being subject. Finally, one last thing I want you to notice here in this introductory phrase is this. Who is this command directed towards? Husbands, make sure your wives are subject to you. Is that what Peter writes? No. Nope. This command, I want you to see, is directed towards the wives themselves. Likewise, wives be subject. In fact, this command is in the passive voice in the Greek, which indicates it is something that the wives are to do themselves out of their own will and volition. I make this point for this reason. Husbands... It is never your job to tell your wife to submit to you. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever tell husbands to tell their wives to submit. Those commands are always directed immediately towards the wife herself. In fact, a husband who focuses on asserting his own authority in marriage is, might I say, out of line. His job is not to do that. His job, according to Ephesians 5.25, is to love his wife sacrificially like Christ loved the church. And as we'll see later in verse 7, even while you're leading your wife, to lead your wife in such a way that you are living with her in an understanding and respectful way so that you can put her needs and her desires and her eternal good above your own needs or desires. In other words, I'm saying this. Husbands, you've got enough on your plate to keep yourself busy. Focus on your responsibilities. And again, I have examples in my mind. Husbands, if you're throwing your weight around and insisting that your whims and your words be viewed as absolute law by your wife, shame on you. You're out of line, and you're not acting like Christ. And you must repent, and you must ask forgiveness from your wife whom you've wronged by abusing the derived authority that God has given you as a husband in your marriage. For the responsibility for the wife submitting to her own husband lies upon her, not on you. That's why it says, likewise, wives, addressing wives, be subject. And in this passage, Peter details what that respectful submission looks like exactly for the believing wife in a series of five points which Peter outlines for us. The extent of marital submission, that's at the beginning of verse 1. The aim of marital submission, which is the end of verse 1 and verse 2. The foundation for marital submission in verses 3 through 4 the illustration of marital submission in verse 5 through 6a, and then the guardrails of marital submission at the end of verse 6 for a believing wife towards her husband. So we have the extent, aim, foundation, illustration, and guardrails of God honoring marital submission for the believing wife to her husband. So that's my introduction. <laughs> uh We will have to wait next week to really dive in at what this looks like. But, frankly, we've covered enough that I already have some three-pointed applications for you to consider before we leave today, okay? Let me offer three encouragements just off of what we looked at so far. First, wives, if you're married to an unbelieving husband who does not obey the Word and has not yet submitted their life in faith to Christ's saving sovereignty... I know your heart if you belong to Jesus and your heart breaks for that man and you've doubtless probably tried to share the gospel with them many many times but I want you to see here in this passage I want you to see that there is hope there is hope there is a way believing wife to show evangelistic enduring goodness every day to your spouse you can drip the grace of the gospel upon your unbelieving husband's heart each and every day there is a way that God has given you to radiate grace to reflect Jesus and to reach out with the gospel each and every day and that is by beginning with being respectfully submissive by aligning yourself under his God-given authority and seeking to respectfully do what is eternally best for him each and every day. Keep on doing. I want to encourage you. Keep on doing what is good and showing respectful submission towards him. And he, by God's grace, might see from you such a clear picture of Christ's grace and salvation in you that perhaps by the will and mercy of God, it would bring him to his knees and submit himself to Jesus Christ. So wives, if you're married to an unbelieving husband, I want you to know even before we dive in this passage, take heart, there's hope. Second, wives, whether your husband is saved or not, I also want you to take heart, there is an evangelistic impact and purpose to your submission. I want you to know this, each and every day that you choose to show the enduring goodness of Christ in the face of hardship and difficulty towards submitting to your often hard and difficult husband, I want you to know in those moments when you choose to do that, you are planting a flag for the kingdom of God in your household, and you are planting a seed for the gospel of Jesus Christ to advance by the very action you're partaking in not only through your testimony to those outside your home as they look in upon your marriage, but even more importantly, through your testimony, have you ever considered to those inside your home? Every time you show enduring goodness and proper subjection to your husband, you become a beacon to Christ's grace and gospel. To your husband, who even if he's saved, still needs to see the gospel every day. And... You are a picture and a beacon of God's grace in the gospel to, as I heard recently, one of the most unreached people groups on the planet, which is our own children. So wives, just like as we're going to see later with husbands, never forget your mission field begins at home. So let's be underlined in the gospel before the watching eyes of the world and sometimes the watching eyes of our own household by how we are treating our spouses. Let's underline the gospel, not undermine it. So wives take heart, there is hope, and there is an evangelistic impact to the example of your submission to authority. And then finally, husbands, I just had to say this because I'm a husband and I kept on thinking about this as I was going through this passage. Let's appreciate the weight, husbands, and the serious nature of what Christ has called our wives to do. And let's be striving to be the most loving, gracious, humble, kind, patient, respectful, understanding, sensitive, and Christ-like husbands possible. So that as our wives are called to follow Jesus and showing enduring goodness through respectful submission, they would be able to say more often than not, honey, walking this path with you is a joy and a delight, not a burden. Thank you for showing Jesus to me. May we husbands strive to show Jesus to them as they strive to show Jesus to us through their respectful submission. We'll have to begin to unpack what the rest of this looks like starting next week. But for now, let's consider this passage in light of those three exhortations and encouragements. This is the Word of God. From 1 Peter 3, verse 1, which I now commit to your further study and faithful obedient in the fervent care of one another until Christ, the perfect bridegroom, returns for us to make us perfect as His bride. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. Thank you for how it is a it is clear and cutting. How it pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and morrows and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Father, we thank you that when it when when your word cuts us open, it is only so that you might heal us. And so, Father, if there is an area of our life. It has not been in alignment with Your truth, make the change in us today by Your grace. Commit our hearts and minds to following closely after Christ this week and how we live towards our spouses so that we would be little pictures of the Gospel towards those who are near and towards those who are far. Give us grace towards this end, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.